Sound Design Live. You're a musician, sound designer, and a synth expert. Tell me about how you got into performing and blogging,、um, and when it all became a professional affair for you. So I started. You know, I've I've been doing music in some form ever since I was a child. Right,、uh, growing up, I played.、Uh, I actually grew up playing organ, not piano. Took organ lessons, and then later in life, as I got into high school, I started getting you know much more interested in electronic music and started listening to the iconic classics, Kraftwerk, Gary Newman, all those things, and、uh, started playing in bands、uh, for fun, and、uh, of course got into synthesizers. And having to learn to program synthesizers just to be able to,、uh, you know, cover a particular sound so that when we played live, it sounded somewhat like the album or maybe different in our own way. It's not like today with the internet where you have a lot of online tutorials. You basically had to be self-motivated, and there was very few people in your local area doing this sort of thing. So it was a lot of experimentation. And、uh, then I moved on、uh, later on to doing music. More professionally, both playing as a as a musician in bands where we were making money, and also later on,、um, around 2002, I started doing custom composition. So by then, I'd be, been uh, uh, working professionally since probably '89. By 2002, I started getting into custom composition using a combination of hardware and software. So I could, you know, create my own arrangements without having to hire studio musicians. What would you say you spend most of your time doing now?、Uh, playing live, or teaching, or blogging? I was composing、uh, for hire. I was,、uh, you know, doing custom compositions,、uh, and then I went on to do sound design for live theater. I did about、uh, nine months、uh, of shows doing sound design, and at some point, I, after doing this for quite a while, I wanted to just. Be a solo artist and, and and release albums. And also, since I'd been working with synthesizers and and all this gear for so long, I really wanted to find a way to give back. So,、uh, for about five and a half years now, I've run this blog called ModulateThis.com, where I've been、uh, you know covering the industry news.、Uh, that's how it started out, but then it really has turned into passing on tidbits and and、uh, ideas and concepts around. How to transcend the technology to make art? A lot of times, when I release patches, I I offer a behind-the-scenes look into how I created it, so that it's not just grabbing a, a library of a thousand sounds. It's you're grabbing a patch, and then I tell you what each、uh, modulation source is and what it's supposed to do, and and how I did it. And simply by loading up the patch and poking around and reading my notes,、uh, as a side effect, you learn more about your instrument. People can really get an in-depth, some in-depth knowledge from getting your patch, right? That's and that's half the fun. And、uh, I tend to do patches that aren't, wouldn't be classic factory patches. A lot of maybe extreme patches or patches that, when you modulate them, do something、uh, very different. And with the idea that how do you how do you make that musical, right? You you've got this sound. How do you、mm-hmm. put that into the mix? And、uh, it it's easier to take something with a bigger range like that and pull it back. Once I give you that patch, then it is for you to take something, maybe in a narrower band and expand it out. So I tend to go a little bigger with some of the patches, and a little more extreme with some of the modulations. Tell me about Patch Lab and about your sound libraries. Typically, let's say you bought a any synthesizer. It has a bank, 
And in the bank, there's a number of slots to hold sounds. So if we take the case of, say, a Waldorf Blofeld, that has 127 uh, sounds in a bank. So typically when you buy a bank of sounds, the sound designer would fill up all 127 and you get 127 sounds. And what I've been trying to do is, instead of giving you 127 sounds, is give you 12 great sounds that will you, you'd be able to use in your mix, but you'd also learn something from just getting in and digging around. All right. And fully articulating those sounds with every modulation parameter possible. So if you look at the case of Ableton Live, they have uh, instrument racks and they have built-in instruments called Simpler, and they have Impulse, which is a drum machine. And... I released this sound pack called Sounds from a Distant Outpost with 12 really deep instruments with the idea that by playing these instruments, you're, you're recreating the sounds of this alien outpost. Tell me about some of the coolest things you're doing with Ableton Live in your live performances. Yeah, Ableton Live, is, it's kind of been a, a life-changing <laughs> for me. I, I grew up, as, as, you, as I mentioned, using hardware synths, and then I moved on to a combination of software synths and linear digital audio workstations. And back in the day, I was using Sonar. Um, in 2006, I switched to Ableton Live 100%. I'm using no other audio workstation software at this time. Uh, and the reason I did that is because as a composer, I wanted to just go 100% virtual as an experiment and see if I could do it. And number two, uh, I fell in love with the workflow of Ableton Live, especially Session View, which is a nonlinear way of arranging music. Mm -hmm. And when Live first came out, it was, a, you know, as you say, it was like a real loop tool. Uh, a lot of loop-based music was was uh, being produced with it. And then as the product progressed, they started putting in MIDI and MIDI editing. And um, the, the real notion of being able to use this session view, which is more like you're looking at an Excel spreadsheet and your music is made up of molecules, which are clips, uh, is just so powerful from a compositional perspective because it means you can compose and arrange and play and perform using one tool. Mm -hmm. You don't have this idea of like, okay, I'm using some workstation software and then I'm going to record it into Pro Tools. And then uh, when I go out on, on the road, I'm going to convert it back to something else so I could possibly play this live with some backing tracks, right? So live, the workflow accommodates doing that whole uh, progression from composition, arrangement, all the way to performance using one tool. So I think that's pretty unique. What I'm going for is like when you go to see a jazz guitar, a jazz guitarist playing on the stage and there's a spotlight, and if they don't touch the strings, nothing happens, right? right. Obviously, if you're trying to recreate a composition that was made with 75 tracks of, of audio, uh, there's some middle ground where I want to, I definitely want to capture what's on the album, but uh, I want it to be a little different every time. I want to be able to make choices. Like, oh, wow, I'm playing this solo and I'm really having a great time and the audience likes it, so I'm going to extend it another four bars. Yeah, you want uh, it to be obvious that music is happening because you're there. If you right. weren't there or you walked off the stage, it might stop. Right, or 
you would hear like a, uh, maybe a basic pattern going, going around. So typically what I'm trying to do is free myself up to, per, to really focus on uh, playing. As, as I mentioned before, I'm really into patches that are very deep and have a lot of nuance uh, and emotion. I've never had a chance to use audio cubes and people can see videos of you using them online, but could you give us a short introduction and talk about the best application for them? Sure. So uh, audio cubes are made by a company in Belgium called Percussa. And they, uh, Percussa was really trying to take an idea like the reactable, which is, uh, you know, a very infrastructure-heavy solution, quite wonderful, has cameras and special surfaces and cubes with stickers on them, and these cameras are detecting relationship between objects on a table to then tell the software what to do. Um, what Percussa set out to do is to do an infrastructureless backpack-ready version of that that only require that you plug the cube in through USB and configure it. So uh, in a nutshell, what the audio cube is, it's an autonomous computer. It has, on the four faces of the cube, it has sensors, two types. It has infrared and wireless. And using the infrared sensor and putting the cube in what's called sensor mode, a single audio cube acts like a theremin with four sides on it. But the difference is that as you move your finger closer to the sensor and further away from the sensor, it's transmitting MIDI instead of analog signal. Mm -hmm. So you can use that MIDI 0 to 127 to say, open a filter, um, or to uh, change the gate time on an arpeggiator or something like that. It's really up to you because it's completely open. So uh, the audio cube in the sensor mode What's unique about it is you can control four parameters at the same time, tangibly and organically with your fingers. And the throw, you know, the distance between zero and 127 is like the length of your finger outstretched to the face of the cube. So uh, it's quite uh, like anything, right? It takes a lot of, it takes practice. You, you can't just grab a cube and get a result. You've got to figure out what you want to do with it and then... Um, there's enough nuance in that finger movement. If you could imagine going, you know, three or four inches, it, you can take an instrument from something very beautiful to something very harsh. Um, you know, imagine being able to just control four things at the same time. You can't do that with knobs. You know, you can't sure. really reach out and do that with four knobs. So that's one unique characteristic. Uh, the other thing is if you use uh, the cubes in uh, wireless mode, and so they're in transmitter-receiver pairs, uh, a cube face knows uh, what other cube face is facing it, if you will. So if you set a cube down next to another cube, it'll send a MIDI note. Now, you need a piece of middleware that's free called MIDI Bridge that allows you to configure these cubes to act however you want. So you can say this cube is sens sensor mode. It's like having four little theremins. These two cubes are a, are a transmitter-receiver pair. And if, if you can imagine having those two cubes next to, to each other, if and then you rotate the second cube, now you're playing a D, and then you rotate it again, and now you're playing an E. Uh, so on the surface, that sounds pretty simple, but when you take that MIDI information and you pump it back into Ableton Live, Ableton Live has this really fantastic MIDI mapping interface where just about everything on the interface can be mapped. So now you could take that MIDI note, let's say the C, and say, when I, play a MIDI, when I play a C, I don't really want it to play a note. I want it to map to uh, turn the reverb on. When I play a D, uh -huh. I want it to turn on uh, 
bit crushing at 50%, okay? Mm-hmm. And then on the other side of your, your, in your other hand, you might have a sensor cube and you're saying, okay, now that bit crushing is on, as I get my finger closer to the sensor, I want it to be more intense. The other thing you can do with mapping these notes is, of course, launch clips and launch scenes. So you could, in, in one form, say, if I have the cube in one position and then I rotate it, now I'm playing the chorus, rotate it again, now I'm playing the verse, move it to another face, now I'm playing an extra MIDI clip, which is just like a bass hit or something. Turn it again, map that to a vocal sample. So what you need to, kind of the sky's the limit. It's really about taking performance and making it tangible again. And and probably one of the biggest benefits about the cubes is that they also can, uh, they have LEDs inside of them. They light up. Which that's what makes your videos look so cool. (laughs) Right. So if I move my hand closer to the side of a cube and that side of the cube is set to red, it turns more intense as I get closer, which also helps me because I can see how much intensity I'm sending into the cube with my hand. And it's it's really become strange when you use things over, you know, you start like you're playing guitar or something after weeks and months of using them, you can almost feel that bubble as you're squeezing in, even though it's not there because you're seeing the visual feedback. And so now this thing that (laughs) you're just using your hands around in space, it feels like it's, you know, you're pushing on something. It's all your brain, of course, making you think that. But uh, now that changes your performance radically, right? Um, You can, you can, um, you know, be really you know, take a quiet piece and slowly swell something up just by moving your hands around it. You can, you can beat slice. You can, you know, it's, it's up. The, the difficult part of it is you have to figure out what you're going to do with them because it's an open system. Yeah. It, it's like handing someone a guitar with no frets, with no strings. Sure. Saying, it's, it yeah. feels a little abstract and it's hard for me to just come up with an idea, but I'm sure if I had Ableton Live with a set in front of me and then was handed the cubes, I'm sure I would start coming up with ideas of things I could control. Right. So the power is for me, you know, the cubes are, they just generate MIDI. They have free middleware. They'll work with any digital audio workstation. For me, the combination of the cubes with live is special because of the MIDI mapping and the ability to host the virtual instruments. Now, uh, if you will, live is serving as a, um, it's a gateway. It's a host for these wonderful synthesizers and a bridge to allow me to control them through any controller I want to plug in. One of the difficulties with doing electronic music is people complain that there's not enough to look at and it's the worst when it's just, you know, a guy on a laptop. Um, So I wish it was almost even harder though. Uh, You know, when you've got a rock band, you've got these actors on stage who are saying, this is so hard for me to sing this really high note, or this is really difficult, I'm playing this really fast guitar solo, or something like that. So wouldn't it be great if you had the audio cues, but then they were really heavy and really difficult to move, so it looked like this big effort? <laughs> I used to play in bands for years, and I played with uh, you know, 61 key keyboards that weighed 35 pounds with racks of gear. And um, for the first time ever, starting a year and a half ago, I could actually take my rig uh, on the road with me on an airplane in two carry-ons and then play a show. Woohoo! I know. So the fact that it's distributed, I've got the laptop, the launch pad, the audio cubes, a a 25-key controller, uh, means that 
uh, I'm not, you know, I, I can set up in minutes. So, Mark, you're one of the first people that I've talked to who is blogging and is on Facebook and really promoting themselves online and is also on Twitter. But you're not just on Twitter, you dominate it. You have <laughs> over 1,800 followers. You appear on 165 different Twitter lists. Tell me some of your keys to success and, and what are your goals with things like Twitter? Well, it's, uh, Twitter's amazing. Uh, I like Twitter because Twitter helps you meet people based on the conversations they're having, right? So I always say it's sort of like, let's say you're working in a big corporation and you're walking by someone's cube you might overhear somebody talking about, oh my God, have you tried Ableton Live? And you might, at that point, pause a second, take a look, see what the person looks like, walk by, and then you come by again. And next time you walk by, they're like, oh my God, have you tried this amazing synthesizer? And this time you might actually stop and introduce yourself. You know, you don't know each other very well, but the conversation is what connects you, right? Not, not necessarily who you know. And you can get to know people through what they're saying. And quickly decide, yeah, this person is on the same wavelength as me. So one of the reasons I went on on Twitter was to help. You know, I wanted to find people doing what I was doing because uh, obviously there's just not that many people um, in, in every state doing that. One of the other cool things is you're meeting people who have the same passion as you who are uh, maybe even living in a smaller place that doesn't have anyone to talk to about some of this stuff. So they're um, – out there sharing their information as well. So for me, Twitter has been um, just a great way to meet people. And starting last year, I started traveling around a little bit and meeting people I'd met on Twitter to Electra Music 2010 last year in uh, New York in September. Uh, last September, uh, I met a whole bunch of people who I'd met on Twitter. Is the number of your followers an effect of you following them? In order to do to be successful on Twitter, I guess the advice I would give would be to uh, uh, just be consistent and uh, try to post something that you think is interesting to the audience and uh, you know or, or to people you want to meet. Maybe be a better word, and a corporate corporation might put it that way to to an audience. But mm -hmm. it's really about being kind of consistent and using it for. You know, we all have different personas, different hats we wear. And I think that what makes makes it better on Twitter is when people sort of uh, stick to a particular persona so that it's not too mixed up, right? I mean, obviously, we're all well-rounded people. <laughs> so, right. But you'll find, I think, you know, what I see is people who get a lot of followers and, and are, are being consistent. They're saying, you know, well, most of the people who I, I follow and follow back are nonstop talking about Ableton Live and synthesizers and art and uh, music. And a lot of them, of course, are sideways into photography and video and things like that and sound design. So um, I, I think it's about being consistent with, you know, if you're, some, if you're following someone and all of a sudden they start talking about something completely unrelated, that, I think that's what loses people. Tell me about um, exciting things you have coming up. You're playing at the... Uh this electronic music festival again. What else? Well, I'm working on the third album uh, in the trilogy, right? Nice. <laughs> so that's what, what, one project. I have a, I have this series of albums, and I call it the Signals Universe, and uh, it's this epic alien invasion story. I've, I've I've released the first two albums, each telling that story from opposite points of view, which has been a fun compositional challenge. I know and it's you're such a nerd. 
I know, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> and that's maybe another reason why I get some followers, because there's an awful lot of us. Uh, we're not nerds, we're geeks, man. Oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Well, uh, I'll overdub other... geek over nerd later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's some, uh, there's some science fiction geeks who also like, like music. So, uh, but for me, compositionally, it's about having a story to tie the music to, which really, which really helps. So, uh, the, um, so I'm working on another album in that same, uh, same universe, if you will. Uh, I'm also been, as I mentioned, been experimenting with different ways to get sounds to people. I, I, I kind of wear different hats. I wear, some days I'm a composer, some days I feel like I'm just a synthesist and a sound designer. Some days those worlds collide and, and, and merge. Um, but I, I like to just, I love creating sounds and synthesizers from, it, from scratch. I I'll initialize the patch and just sit down and see where I can take it. So I've been really searching for a venue online where I could uh, be effective in getting those sounds out to people and have people also at the same time inspire them to master their instrument, whatever that would be, some sort of synthesizer. It doesn't mm -hmm. have to be the one I'm using. Uh, so I've been dabbling with that, and, and I'm continuing to explore that. So I'm working on um, patches for two hardware synthesizers right now. One is called the Waldorf Blofeld, and the other is called the, uh, it's made by Novation. It's called the Ultra Nova. And why I'm working on these two synthesizers is it really fits into the controllerism and expressiveness uh, story I was telling before about why I use live. These synthesizers in general have taken that idea and vibe of what I can do with a computer and they're doing it in hardware at a certain level. And I want to try and see where I can push the hardware side. It's sort of coming back full circle to hardware synths. So under Patch Lab, I've started two microsites. One is called uh, ultranova.modulatethis.com and the other is called blofeld.modulatethis.com. Okay. And uh, I'm exploring and giving tips on these synthesizers on those microsites. And why I'm doing it on a microsite is because, remember I just said, you have to sort of separate the conversation and have a persona. Um, I don't want to swamp everybody who's just a general modulate this reader mm -hmm. with totally geeked out posts on the Waldorf blowboat. <laughs> if you're going to buy my album, you don't care about any of that stuff typically, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a lot more work to split it all up, but you end up, I think, meeting uh, a lot more people and uh, having more people, um, you know, you don't, you, don't, you don't kill them with something they're not interested in. One other project I'm working on, I'll mention in a second, is uh, also open knowledge project. I, I really think that we need to, it's not a zero-sum game out here. Obviously, if you're an engineer and you've spent four years writing a piece of software or working on a piece of hardware, you want to protect it. Um, However, what we need in the electronic music realm right now are people sharing process and people sharing templates so that not everybody has to go through that same learning curve. Mm -hmm. So that when I hand you the audio cubes, it's not like handing you a, a guitar with no frets on it or no strings. So if, if we open source our ideas and share our music, um, you, know, you don't have to give it up. Creative Commons just allows other people to access it and use it in, in, in ways that contributes to their art. So uh, I'm all about that. And also, um, I started another project called the Nine Box. Oh, you need another project. <laughs> the Nine Box is, uh, it's for, um, it's a set of templates that allows um, people who, um, right now it's, it's, it's for schools and people who want to do like tribal jams with electronic music. And my idea with this project was to 
create uh, using off-the-shelf products a set of templates that would allow you to get the system up and running in a matter of minutes and then allow people who didn't necessarily, weren't musicians, could uh, get a taste for electronic music by collaborating with each other. What's awesome about this project is uh, I'm not, it's not a product. I've, I've documented everything. I've just put it up there, open knowledge under Creative Commons. And as a result, a local school in Denver has based their new music lab on this. And oh, wow. I have, yeah, I have kids who are kindergarten through sixth grade and they have all ages playing the nine box, which is based on um, six audio cubes. And there's a refill system and they're doing field recordings and reloading the nine box with audio. And it's, it's just an amazing project. And it's, uh, it's just started and one school is doing it, but I think there's applications for it in education and possibly music therapy. Yeah, you need to, it's funny because on my Facebook page, my family doesn't even follow me anymore because nice. I crush them with synthesizer stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds live. Sound Design Live.